This essay is Setting the Stage, the World of Abraham. This audio version includes excerpts from articles originally published in the Improvement Era in 1969, which later appeared in the second edition of Nibley's book, Abraham in Egypt. Setting the Stage, the World of Abraham. Hard times come again. One of the main objections of the higher critics to the patriarchal stories as history was that they were altogether too idyllic in their peaceful pastoral setting, which belonged to the bucolic poets rather than to the stern realities of life. But as Professor Albright now reminds us, the calm pastoral life of the patriarchs has turned out to be a myth. And the myth was invented by the scholars, for neither the Bible nor the Apocrypha gives it the least countenance. The world of Abraham that they describe was little short of an earthly hell. Furthermore, the peculiar nature of those terrible times, as described in the written sources, is in such close agreement with what is turning up in the excavations that it becomes possible to assign to Abraham a very real role and, possibly within a short time, a definite date in history. In reconstructing the world of Abraham, it is customary procedure first to determine an approximate date for the hero and then to look for things in the history of that period which fit into his career. But since the world of Abraham has already been described for us in the traditional sources, we are going to reverse the process and withhold any attempt at dating until we have the clearest possible picture of what was going on. Then, given enough details and particulars, the dating should pretty well take care of itself. What justifies such a course is the remarkable clarity and consistency of the accounts of the Bible and the ancient commentators when they describe the physical world of Abraham, the state of society, Abraham's reactions to the challenges that met him, and the wonderful body of challenges that met him, and the wonderful body of covenants and ordinances that he handed on to us. Let us consider each of these briefly in order. Each of the great dispensations of the gospel has come in a time of world upheaval, when the waywardness of the human race has been matched by a climactic restlessness of the elements. When Adam was cast out of the Garden of Eden, he found himself, we are told, in a sultry land of darkness, where he was lost and confused, where temporary survival was a matter of toil and sweat amidst the all-conquering dust. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Worse still, Satan was on hand to add to his burdens, deride his efforts, and make fearful inroads into the integrity of his progeny. Who but our first parents could have sustained the appalling birth shock of sudden precipitation from one world to another, from the presence of God to thorns, thistles, and dust? If we fancy Noah riding the sunny seas, high, dry, and snug in the ark, we have not read the record, the long, hopeless struggle against entrenched mass resistance to his preaching, the deepening gloom and desperation of the years leading up to the final debacle, then the unleashed forces of nature, with the family absolutely terrified, weeping and praying because they were at the gates of death, as the ark was thrown about with the greatest violence by terrible winds and titanic seas. Albright's suggestion that the flood story goes back to the tremendous floods which must have accompanied successive retreats of the glaciers is supported by the tradition that the family suffered terribly because of the cold and that Noah on the waters coughed blood on account of the cold. The Jaredites had only to pass through the tail end of the vast storm cycle of Noah's day 
Yet for 344 days, they had to cope with mountain waves and a wind that did never cease to blow. Finally, Noah went forth into a world of utter desolation, as Adam did, to build his altar, call upon God, and try to make a go of it all over again, only to see some of his progeny on short order prefer Satan to God and lose all the rewards that his toil and sufferings had put in their reach. All of Moses' life was toil and danger, the real, intimate, ever-present danger, such as only the Near East can sustain at a high level for indefinite periods of time. No one would ask to go through what Lehi did, or Jared and his brother, or Joseph Smith in his dispensation. And the one who suffered most of all was the Lord himself, despised, rejected, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. In short, the leaders of the great dispensations have truly earned their calling and their glory, paying a price that the rest of the human race could not pay even if they would. Preeminent among these was Abraham, whose life, as the rabbis remind us, was an unbroken series of supremely difficult tests. As in some frightful nightmare, the narrator ticks off the principal episodes. But Sarai was barren, she had no child. Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. Going on still toward the south, and there was a famine in the land. The Egyptians beheld the woman, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And Pharaoh said, What is this that thou hast done unto me? And they sent him away. And the land was not able to bear them, and there was a strife. The kings came and made war, and they took Lot and his goods. I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus. Lo, and horror of great darkness fell upon him. My wrong be upon thee, I have given my maid into thy bosom, and I was despised in her eyes, the Lord judge between me and thee. Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Oh, let not the Lord be angry. Lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. They will slay me for my wife's sake. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar and sent her away. And Abraham reproved Abimelech because of a well of water, which Abimelech's servants had violently taken away. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and offer him there for a burnt offering. I am a stranger and a sojourner with you. Give me a possession of a burying place with you, that I may bury my dead. Any one of these crises is enough to break any man's spirit. There are various standard lists of the classic Ten Trials of Abraham, and while the later lists are confined to events mentioned in the Bible, the earlier ones significantly give a prominent place to Abraham's imprisonment in Mesopotamia and the attempt to sacrifice him. But all are agreed that Abraham's career was an incredibly severe time of probation, and that the problems he had to face were forced upon him largely by the evil times in which he lived world food shortage. But far more conspicuous in the Abraham traditions than the raging storms and floods is the blasting heat and drought that bring famine to the scene. In the book of Abraham, the prophet, 
even before the conflict with the people of Ur, of the Chaldees, learns from the Lord that there is going to be a famine in the land. And after his escape from the altar, the famine descends in earnest, blighting the whole land of Chaldea. Leaving the country, Abraham, as his first act on crossing the border into Canaan, sacrifices to God, praying that the famine might be turned away from my father's house, that they might not perish. But even in Canaan, the famine only got worse and worse, forcing the patriarch to go clear to Egypt for food, for the famine became very grievous. Of the ten great famines to afflict the world, according to Jewish tradition, the greatest was that in Abraham's time, it being the first worldwide famine. Needless to say, hunger or famine was one of the ten trials of Abraham. In the last days of Methuselah, when men began to apostatize and defile the earth and steal from one another, God purposefully caused the harvest to fail. This tradition is clearly recalled in the Pearl of Great Price. With the birth of Noah, things began to improve, and Noah himself sought to improve conditions by inventing plows, sickles, axes, and other agricultural machinery. Next, when men reverted to evil during the time of the scattering from the tower, the time of God's wrath, it did not rain. The great winds were dry winds. In the lament for Ur, we are told how the good storm is driven out of the land and the people are scattered. Everywhere corpses lie withering in the sun. Many die of hunger. The heat is unbearable. All government collapses. Parents desert their children. Kenan, the son of Enos, is said to have recorded the great famine that followed the preaching of his father. Then in the days of Terah, just before the birth of Abraham, Mastama, Satan, sent crows and birds, and by the starving birds the people were robbed of their grain and fruit and reduced to destitution. So we find Abraham at the age of four, some say fifteen, driving the birds from the fields, but politely explaining the situation to them and reaching an amicable understanding as he does so. All his life he is escaping from heat, drought, and hunger, or helping others to escape from them. Everywhere he goes he digs wells and plants trees, most of which perish. He invents important improvements in agricultural machinery and methods, and distributes food wherever he can. He undertakes search and rescue missions for wanderers in the desert when it was as hot as the Day of Judgment. God having released the fires of hell on the earth and tangles with marauding bands amidst dust and stubble. But above all, it is in a ritual capacity that Abraham is involved in the business of checking heat and drought. This may seem very strange until we realize that the running of the waters and the tempering of the blasting heat is the main theme of the great yearly ritual assemblies of Abraham's day from one end to the other of the inhabited world. The book of Abraham is aware of the strange system in which human sacrifice and famine are closely connected. The ancients, though they knew perfectly well that it was the sun that dried up the earth, nevertheless attributed the most deadly heat and drought to the dog star, who in Abraham's day was propitiated with the thank offering of a child as the god of Shagra'el. It was when famine prevailed in spite of everything that Abraham's father decided not to make such an offering of his own son. A famine prevailed throughout all the land of Chaldea, and my father was sorely tormented, and he repented of the evil which he had determined against me to take away my life. But Abraham's brother, Haran, died in the famine. We are not told why this was permitted while the rest of the family survived, 
but numerous legendary accounts have it that Haran died as an offering in the fire in the place of Abraham. As we have seen, Abraham's delivery from the altar in the land of the Chaldees is often described as his escape from the fire of the furnace of Chaldea, and we are told how at the moment he was cast from the altar into the flames. The latter became a lush and lovely garden. In the most mysterious episode in all his career, we find Abraham driving off birds of prey from a sacrifice while he is overcome with the tardema, which some scholars interpret as sunstroke. The first altar Abraham built, according to Abraham chapter 2, verse 17, was for an offering and prayer that the famine might be turned away from my father's house. What is most significant for our study is that the Bucyrus type of sacrifice, of which our facsimile number one is an illustration, has the specific object of propitiating the heavens in time of drought and famine. A World in Trouble The great insecurity of life accompanying major natural upheavals, when men can no longer count on the stability of the earth itself, is not without marked psychological effect. A basic teaching of the Talmud is that there is a definite correlation between the behavior of man and the behavior of nature. The universe is so organized, according to this, that when man revolts against God's plan of operations, to which all other creatures conform, he finds himself in the position of one going the wrong way on a freeway during rush hour. The very stars in their course fight against him. The blight of nature follows the wickedness of man in every age. Thus, when Adam fell, an angel cut down all the trees of the garden but one. When Abel was murdered, all the vegetation in the world withered until Seth was born, when it bloomed again. But when men started worshiping idols in the time of Abraham's great-grandparents, the sea rose along the whole eastern Mediterranean seaboard, flooding one-third of the land from Akko to Jaffa. And when in the last days of Methuselah men again defiled the earth, God caused all the harvest to fail. This same philosophy is strikingly expressed in the book of Moses in the Pearl of Great Price, especially in the seventh chapter, where we even hear the earth itself, personified as the mother of men, weeping for the wickedness of her children that have defiled her. It was because of wickedness among the people that the birds came to destroy their crops when Abraham was a child. As it was in the days of Noah, so in the days of Abraham, a very old Christian writing explains, the world was ripe for destruction, according to the principle that whenever men fall away completely from God, destruction must follow. Indeed, the people had sunk so low, says one very old source, that God caused their civilization to degenerate back to the stage of cave dwelling and brought Abraham out of the land. After the flood, men were haunted by an understandable feeling of insecurity to overcome which they undertook tremendous engineering projects. Among these was the famous tower, which was to be the symbol of man's ultimate mastery of nature, being so ingeniously designed and solidly constructed as to be absolutely safe against flood, fire, and earthquake. Within the walls of the tower was to be stored the sum total of man's knowledge of the physical universe, enabling him to meet and master any situation that might arise. And it was all done out of fear of another flood. A great economic boom and commercial expansion enabled them to undertake all kinds of engineering projects for controlling a dangerous nature. But the Lord fooled them by altering the course of nature and creation. 
That was in Abraham's day. The Nimrod legends are full of marvelous gadgets and structures, super buildings, mechanical thrones and altars, flying machines and whatnot. It was a time of great scientific and technological progress. The Abraham stories, including the Book of Abraham, are unique in their concern for a scientific understanding of the cosmos as against a purely religious and moral teaching. The toppling on the edge of destruction, those hot winds were breathing down everybody's neck. In desperation, men turned to worshiping idols. Why idols, of all things, in a scientific age? It was because in the whole world the people were without a teacher or a lawgiver or anyone who could show them the way of truth. Of course, there was Abraham, but they didn't want him. And precisely therein lay the convenience of having idols. Even when the boy Abraham argued with his father that the idols were blind, dumb, and helpless, as anyone could see, and therefore could not possibly help others, Terah stuck to his idol business. The one salient, outstanding, universal, undeniable characteristic of all idols is their utterly passive helplessness. If men persist in worshiping them, it cannot be in spite of that quality, but because of it. The sophisticated people of Abraham's time wanted the sanction of holy beings, which at the same time were 100% compliant with their own interests and desires, just as people today search out those scriptures which support their interests and push the rest aside. As Brigham Young pointed out time and again, the enlisting of systematic piety in the interest of private greed and ambitions is the very essence of idolatry. We can believe that the smart and cynical people of Abraham's day were sincere and devout in their idol worship. After all, Abraham's own father was willing to put him to death in support of the system. Move on. The Bible does not tell us why Abraham left Ur, but the book of Abraham clearly implies that he found the general atmosphere of Mesopotamia unbearable. There are indications that he was swept along to the West with many others under the pressure of world unrest and political crisis. When you see the powers fighting each other, says the Midrash, look for the coming of the King Messiah. The proof is that in the days of Abraham, because these powers fought against each other, greatness came to Abraham. Recently, one scholar has suggested that the advancing armies of the great Semitic ruler Hammurabi were probably the cause of departure from his native city of Abraham. Others emphasized religious reasons. He was escaping from the idolatrous rites and ceremonies of the fathers, according to Judith. Terah left Ur because he hated Chaldea, on account of his mourning for Haran, says Josephus. And when the family moved, Abraham was in serious trouble with both Chaldeans and Mesopotamians, and finally had to leave the country altogether. He left for the West, according to the pseudo-Philo, because his homeland had become completely degenerate and because he had become disgusted with the tower building and the whole business. The religious background of Abraham had been Babylonian, Chaldean rather than Egyptian, and that at a time, as Friedrich Cornelius puts it, when Babylonian religious degeneracy was flooding the Syrian regions. It was to escape this spreading miasma, some have maintained, that Abraham fled to the purer air of the West. While on a return visit to Haran after 15 years in Canaan, according to one story, Abraham was terribly shocked by the general immorality of the old hometown 
and yearned for the simpler frontier life of Canaan. A Roman soldier with a keen eye and a sound head has left us a description of the hot, sultry, mosquito and lion-ridden district of Haran, with its voluptuous, rich, carefree, immoral inhabitants. And though his account is as far removed from Abraham's day as it is from our own, still this particular corner of the unchanging east has indeed remained unchanged even down to our times, as Parrot has strikingly demonstrated. The ancient ore to the south has been described by its excavators in much the same terms as are the great contemporary cities of the Indus Valley by their discoverers. They were depressing places to live, huge, ugly, monotonous, geometrical, rich, sultry, joyless metropolises. But Abraham's Canaan did not offer escape for long. The fabulous prosperity of the cities of the plain turned them too into little Babylons. The only city of the plain yet discovered, El Rasul, displays astonishing luxury and sophistication, the style being Babylonian rather than Egyptian, and apparently already in a state of decadence just before its destruction by an earthquake. Some have explained Abraham's departure to the west simply as a test. He migrated because God told him to do so. If it was a test, it was a severe one. Professor Albright has recently pointed out that the ancient pioneers, far from finding a golden west awaiting them, were ethno-political intruders in the west, and as such, were not well received, but were closely watched and were usually driven away by the local inhabitants who bitterly resented any attempt on the part of outsiders to move in and take over their fields or pastures. Even in Canaan, moreover, the Babylonian threat followed the patriarch, who was forced to leave Damascus, according to a very ancient source, because of military and political pressure from the east. In Canaan, Abraham's nephew, Lot, catching the spirit of the times, declared that he preferred suburban Sodom to the society of his uncle, saying, I want neither Abraham nor his God, and moved down into the crowded and prosperous plain. Our Hospitality when Abraham went forth into a starving world, he found the people understandably touchy and dangerous. And they persecuted Abraham our father when he was a stranger, and they vexed his flocks as well as his servants. And thus they did to all strangers, taking away their wives by force, and they banished them. But the wrath of the Lord came upon them. This is the testament of Levi, speaking of Abraham in Shechem. But he found the same hostility elsewhere, that worldwide cruelty and inhospitality which is best represented by the notorious Procrustes and especially by Abraham's own stomping grounds, Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible tells us that the Jordan Depression was a veritable paradise when Abraham first visited it, before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. It is not surprising that the men of Sodom were the wealthy men of prosperity on account of the good and fruitful land whereon they dwelt. For every need which the world requires, they obtain therefrom. Nor is it very surprising that they did not trust in the shadow of their Creator, but in the multitude of their wealth they trusted, for wealth thrusts aside its owners from the fear of heaven. Here, Rabbi Eliezer seems to be quoting the same sources as did Samuel the Lamanite in Helaman chapter 13, verses 18 through 39, both men being diligent students of the old Jewish writings. He also seems to be using the same source as King Benjamin, 
in Mosiah chapter 4, verses 16 through 26, as he continues, The men of Sodom had no consideration for the honor of their owner, of their wealth, by not distributing food to the wayfarer. But they even fenced in all the trees on top above their fruit, so that they should not be seized, not even by the bird of heaven. This was in the authentic Babylonian tradition, eyewitness accounts telling how the people of Babylon oppressed the weak and gave him into the power of the strong. Inside the city was tyranny and receiving of bribes. Every day without fail they plundered each other's gods. The son cursed his father in the street, the slave his master. They put an end to offerings and entered into conspiracies. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah were not condemned for their ignorance of the God of Abraham, but rather for their meanness, their immorality, and their greed. They were destroyed because they did not strengthen the hand of the poor and heeded not the needy. For them, everything existed for the sole purpose of being turned into cash. They put a toll on all their bridges with a double toll for waiting. They charged visitors for everything and had the most ingenious tricks for getting money out of them. When Abraham's servant tried to help a poor man who had been robbed and was being beaten up by a gang in Sodom, he was attacked by the mob, arrested, and dragged into court, where he was fined the price of bloodletting as a perfectly legitimate physician's fee. For like the Nephites under the Gadianton administration, these people were careful to keep everything legal. Thus they would pay a merchant good prices for his goods, but refused to sell him any food, and when he starved to death, would piously confiscate all of his wares and his wealth. Of course, the richer a man, the more was he favored before the law, for it was wicked to encourage idleness by helping the poor. Anyone helping the poor in Sodom got thrown into the river. There are lurid tales of tender-hearted virgins, including Lot's daughter, who suffered terrible punishment when they were caught secretly helping the poor. It was one of these episodes, according to the Midrash, that finally caused God to decide to destroy the city. Just south of Sodom was the great plain where the licentious yearly rites were held. In these, all strangers were required by law to participate, and during the four-day celebration, they were efficiently relieved of everything they owned. The great pilgrimage centers of the old world were understandably the worst places in the world for fleecing strangers, that being through the centuries the principal commercial activity of the natives.
Interesting that travelers and birds alike learned to avoid the rich cities of the plain, while all the poor emigrated to other parts. Interestingly enough, the records of Ugarit, which some hold to be contemporary with Abraham, show that the practice of killing merchants was widespread in that part of the world, even as the Amarna letters show us a world in which it is every man for himself. Having no love for the stranger, the people of Abraham's homeland had even less to waste on each other. And finally, there was so much crime and murder among them that everything came to a complete standstill. Being grossly materialistic, they rated the hardware high above the software. If a man fell and died, working on the tower, they paid no heed to him. But if a brick fell, they sat down and wept. Seeing this, Abraham cursed them in the name of his God. One cannot help thinking of the church builders in Mormon, chapter 8, verses 37 and 39, who adorn themselves with that which hath no life, while calmly ignoring the needs of the living. They were dwelling in security without care and at ease, without the fear of war, sated with all the produce of the earth, but they did not strengthen the hand of the needy or the poor, as it is said, Behold, this was the iniquity of thy sister Sodom. That this emphasis on wealth and status was the real wickedness of Sodom and Gomorrah is attested by both the Bible and the Pearl of Great Price, the latter holding up as a lesson in contrast to the world in which the patriarchs lived. There were wars and bloodshed among them. In the Old Testament, the one time in his life when Abraham refuses to deal with one who makes him an offer is when he coldly turns down the king of Sodom. It was after his victory over the marauding chiefs of the east that Abraham willingly accepted whatever the grateful king of Salem offered him as a reward, freely exchanging gifts and compliments with the king of righteousness. But he absolutely refused to take anything whatever from the fawning king of Sodom, whose goods he had also rescued. I have raised my hand to Jehovah El Elyon, that he would not take so much as a shoestring from that king, so that he can never say, I enriched Abraham. He knew his Sodom and saw just what kind of a deal the king wanted to make for himself, and God applauded his wisdom and reassured him, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. When Abraham and Lot started getting rich, their retainers took to quarreling, whereupon Abraham, determined to avoid involvement in that sort of thing, told Lot that he was welcome to Sodom while he, Abraham, withdrew to a less prosperous region. Let there be no strife, for we be brethren. The rich cities of the plain, where they failed to serve the Lord by reason of the abundance of all things, were no place for Abraham. Abraham the Hospitable The history of Abraham is a story of contrasts and extremes, if meanness and inhospitality reach an all-time high in Sodom and Gomorrah, Abraham holds the record for charity and compassion. The contrast is an intentional one and a mark of authentic Abrahamic literature. The supreme example of such coincidence of opposites is found in the Pearl of Great Price, where, in contrast to the city of Enoch, the height of human perfection in this world, is set the most depraved society in all the universe, and among all the workmanship of mine hands there has not been so great wickedness as among thy brethren. In Abraham's day, the world was in a desperate state, ripe for destruction. And Abraham's own society was the wickedest. 
When a man was cruel, says the Midrash Rabbah, he was called an Amorite. For the patriarchs, the future was grim, and none had better cause to know it than Abraham. The famous formula, Lech Lekach, is a double imperative, according to the rabbis, telling Abraham to get going and keep moving from one land to another. His whole career, as Martin Buber put it, was an ever new separation for him and his progeny from the world and from his own people. This entire history is a consequence of choices and partings. If constant travel was one of the ten trials of Abraham, jeopardizing his family, fortune, and reputation, travel in dangerous and hostile regions was a horror. Such was the curse placed upon the wandering Jew for his meanness and want of hospitable feeling. The Zohar has an interesting psychological note on the state of Abraham's world. It is when things are going badly that Satan loves to spread his accusations abroad. For this is the way of Satan, to bring accusations against him on high, reserving his indictment for the hour of danger, or for a time when the world is in distress. Then hysteria adds fuel to the fires of destruction. In such times, even the righteous have no guarantee of security. For while the Holy One does not punish the guilty until the measure of their guilt is full, when that time comes, look out. When punishment overtakes the world, a man should not let himself be found abroad, since the executioner does not distinguish between the innocent and the guilty. In the most inhospitable of worlds, Abraham was the most hospitable of men. It was said that charity was asleep in the world, and Abraham awakened it. Even before he went to Canaan, he held continual open house near Haran to try to counteract the evil practices of the time. Then, when he was forced to move, he dug wells and planted trees along his way, leaving blessings for those he would never see. Arriving and settling in Beersheba, he built a garden and grove and put gates on each of the four sides of it as a welcome to strangers from all directions, so that if a traveler came to Abraham, he entered any gate which was in his road, and remained there, and ate and drank. For the house of Abraham was always open to the sons of men that passed and repassed, who came daily to eat and drink in the house of Abraham. He also operated a school at the place that none might want for spiritual food. Abraham's house thus became not only a lodging place for the hungry and thirsty, but also a place of instruction where the knowledge of God and his law were taught. When his guests thanked him, he said, in the words of King Benjamin, an ardent student of early Jewish traditions, see Mosiah chapter 4, verse 19, What ye give thanks unto me? Rather return thanks to your host, he who alone provides food and drink for all creatures. Inspired by the noble example and teaching of his uncle, Lot tried to operate the same kind of inn when he settled near Sodom, but he was soon reported to the authorities and had to operate secretly at night, while his daughters practiced their charities with great stealth and suffered severe penalties when they were caught. Abraham's continued hospitality nearby was resented by the people of the plain as a standing rebuke to their own sensible practices. Not content to admit the weary wanderer at all hours to his pleasant grove and board, Abraham, in those dangerous times, used to undertake search and rescue missions in the desert it was at noon of a phenomenally hot day when the entire earth was being consumed with unbearable solar heat 
as if God had pierced one hole in the midst of Gehinnom and made the day hot like the day of the wicked, or as if he had caused the sun to emerge from its protecting sheath, depriving the earth of its normal defense against deadly rays, that Abraham, suffering terribly from illness, had his faithful Eleazar go out and search the byways for any lost wanderers. Eleazar couldn't find a soul, which was no wonder on such a day, but Abraham still felt uneasy. It was just possible that somebody might be out there needing his help. So the old man went forth all alone to search in that dusty inferno. For that supreme act of involvement, he received his supreme reward, the son he had always prayed for. For as he was returning from his mission of mercy, still alone, he was met by three men, whom he at first, according to a very ancient tradition, took to be Arabs. Joyfully, he led them to his tent, where he soon discovered who they were. Lord of the universe, he cried, as he served them with food, is it the order of the cosmos that I should sit while you stand? Then it was that Abraham received the desire of his heart and the commendation of his good works. Thou hast done well to leave thy doors open for the wanderer and the home journeyer and the stranger. Nay, were it not for men like Abraham, I would not have bothered to create the heaven, earth, sun, and moon. There is a story of how Abraham, to see what kind of a wife Ishmael, his son, had got, visited his camp in the desert as a simple, wandering old man. Ishmael was away at the time, and his wife turned the old tramp away. Abraham left a message with her, however, by the cryptic wording of which Ishmael knew who had been there, and advised him to get another wife. Three years later, Abraham visited the camp under the same circumstances and was shown kindness by the second wife, with whom he left another message for Ishmael, commending her worth. A more famous story tells how when God sent Michael to fetch Abraham back to his presence at the end of his life, the patriarch was still his old hospitable self, kindly inviting the dread stranger, representing death itself, to be his guest. Ever since then, when the world is in an evil way, the angels say to God, The highways lie waste, the wayfaring man ceaseth. He hath broken the covenant. Where is the reward of Abraham, he who took the wayfarers into his house? Let it begin with me. Students of Abraham's life are impressed by the way in which he seems to start from scratch, with all the world going in one direction, he steadily pursues his course in the opposite. Granted that the tradition of the fathers, of which the book of Abraham speaks so eloquently, was still known, yet his own father and grandfather had lost faith in it and departed from it. Ten generations from Noah to Abraham, and there was not one of them that walked in the ways of the Holy One, until Abraham our father, says Rabbi Nathan, who asks where then did Abraham get the idea of starting things moving? The common explanation that Abraham was self-taught, God appointed the two reigns of Abraham to act as two teachers, still does not make him a privileged character, for all men have the same promptings of the Spirit if they will only listen to them. For charity was asleep, and he roused it. The power was there, but it lay dormant from neglect. When all the inhabitants of the earth had been led astray in their own pride and self-sufficiency, Abraham still believed on the Lord, who then made a covenant with him. 
Abraham received his covenant only after he had made the first move. Speaking of him, the Zohar says, the prophetic spirit rests upon man only when he has first bestirred himself to receive it. Again, the stirring below is accompanied by a stirring above, for there is no stirring above till there is a stirring below. But who was to start the stirring? It was Abraham's unique merit that he loved righteousness in a hard-hearted and wicked generation without waiting for others to show him the way. A wonderful illustration of this principle is set forth in the 1832 account of Joseph Smith's first vision, in which he recounts how for three years he sought diligently for something that apparently interested nobody else. And finally, I cried unto the Lord for mercy, for there was none else to whom I could go, and the Lord heard my cry in the wilderness. This was exactly the case with the young Abraham, who at an early age angered his father by questioning all the values and beliefs of his society. For generations the world had moved ever farther and farther from God, until by Abraham's time it had become what the Pearl of Great Price describes as the worst of all worlds. Then Abraham single-handedly reversed the trend. The Shekinah, Spirit of God, came to earth at the creation but through human sin removed itself farther and farther from earth. Then Abraham brought it down again. He was, says the Midrash, like a man who saw a building all on fire and no one willing to put out a hand to save it. He said, is it conceivable that the world is without a guide? So he did the only thing he could do, and exactly like Joseph Smith, appealed directly to God at an early age. It was he who made the first move, according to Abraham, chapter 2, verse 12. Thy servant has sought thee earnestly. Now I have found thee. This independence of mine got both prophets into trouble from the beginning. The man Abram is singled out and sent out. He is brought forth from out of the world of peoples and must go his own way. The trials of both men begin immediately. What drives Abraham is set forth at the beginning of his story with great clarity and power. First of all, he is frankly seeking greater happiness and peace and rest for me. He wants to be more righteous, to possess greater knowledge than he has, to be a father of nations, a prince of peace, receiving and following divine instruction, to become a rightful heir, a high priest, holding the right belonging to the fathers. In short, he wants happiness, peace, rest, righteousness, knowledge, and light. And he wants to be able to hand them on to others, to his own progeny, and to the world. The world is not interested in such things, but Abraham was willing to pay any price for them. The Midrash compares him to a son being soundly beaten by his loving father again and again, but never saying to his father, I have had enough, but only, thine is the power. Abraham, says 1st Maccabees, was accounted righteous only after he had been found true and faithful by passing through many testings. He was chosen, says the Midrash, only after God saw that he would follow him through the greatest tribulations. If Joseph Smith had based the book of Abraham on his own experiences, one might account in part for the astonishing parallels between the situation in which the two prophets found themselves and their uncompromising and epoch-making behavior in that situation. But our parallels do not come from Joseph Smith's account. They come from the studies and commentaries of Jewish scholars. It is their Abraham, 
who seems to be almost a carbon copy of Joseph Smith. Doing the right thing. The wonderful thing about Abraham is that he always does the right thing, whether anybody else does or not. He had to get along with all sorts of people, most of them rascals, and he treats them all with equal courtesy. He never judges any man. After Pharaoh had tried to put him to death, and after he had taken his wife away from him, Abraham could still not refuse his old enemy in his need, and laid his hand upon his head and healed him. He performed the same healing office for the king of the Philistines, who would also steal Sarah, and God recognized his great-heartedness and approved it. On the day that Abraham assured the increase of the house of Abimelech, the angels asked God that Abraham's own house might increase. He was the friend of God because he was the friend of man. When Abraham went to the Holy One with a petition for mercy, says the Midrash, the Holy One met him with mercy. When Abraham went to the Holy One in singleness of heart, the Holy One met him in singleness of heart. With subtlety, the Holy One met him with subtlety. And when Abraham asked to be guided in his doings, the Holy One guided his doings for him. Never, says Maimonides, did Abraham ever say to any man, God sent me to you and commanded me to do, or not do, so and so. For he knew that the priesthood operates only by persuasion, by long-suffering, by gentleness and meekness. It may command the elements and the spirits, but never force the human mind. Let there be no strife, I pray thee, between me and thee, he says to Lot. If thou wilt take the left hand, then I will go to the right, or the right hand, then I will go to the left. So Lot helped himself to the best land, and as a result, soon got all of his property carried away by raiders. Instead of saying, I told you so, Abraham got it back for him. He could have made a very good thing of this for himself when the king of Sodom, whose goods he had also rescued, came fawning to him, wagging his tail, as the Midrash Rabbah puts it, and trying to win him with flattery. But without denouncing the wicked king, he simply turned down his offer. If Abraham does not play fair, who will, says the proverb? His passion for fair play breaks all the records in his pleading for the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, to whom he owed nothing but trouble. He knew all about their awful wickedness, but still, Josephus observes, he felt sorry for them because they were his friends and neighbors. He appealed directly to the Lord's sense of fairness. Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? The impressive thing is the way in which Abraham is willing to abase himself to get the best possible terms for the wicked cities, risking sorely offending the deity by questioning his justice. Far be it from thee to slay the righteous with the wicked. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Behold, now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. O oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Now I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord. O let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak yet but this once. It was not an easy thing to do, especially for the most degenerate society on earth. It can be matched only by Mormon's great love for a people whom he describes as utterly and hopelessly corrupt, or by the charity of Enoch, Abraham's great predecessor. Enoch looked upon their wickedness and their misery and wept and stretched forth his arms, and his heart swelled wide as eternity, and declared, 
I will refuse to be comforted until God promised to have compassion on the earth. Abraham learned compassion both by being an outcast himself and by special instruction, regarding which there are some interesting stories. When Melchizedek was instructing him in the mysteries of the priesthood, he told him that Noah and his people were permitted to survive in the ark because they practiced charity. On whom, Abraham asked, since they were alone in the ark? On the animals, was the answer, since they were constantly concerned with their comfort and welfare. Again, Abraham once beheld a great vision, described also in the book of Abraham, of all the doings of the human race to come. What he saw appalled him. He had never dreamed that men could be so bad, and in a passionate outburst he asked God why he did not destroy the wicked at once. The answer humbled him. I defer the death of the sinner who might possibly repent and live. When Abraham saw with prophetic insight the crimes that Ishmael would commit against him and his house, he was about to turn the youth out into the desert, but the voice of God rebuked him. Thou canst not punish Ishmael or any man for a crime he has not yet committed. He learned by precept and experience that men are judged by God, not as groups, but as individuals. But Abraham's most famous lesson in tolerance was a favorite story of Benjamin Franklin, a story which has been traced back as far as a 13th century Arabic writer and may be much older. The prologue to the story is the visit of three angels to Abraham, who asked him what he charged for meals. The price was only that the visitor invoke the name of God before beginning and praise it when you finish. But one day the patriarch entertained an old man who would pray neither before eating nor after, explaining to Abraham that he was a fire worshiper. His indignant host thereupon denied him further hospitality, and the old man went his way. But very soon the voice of the Lord came to Abraham, saying, I have suffered him these hundred years, although he dishonored me, and thou couldst not endure him one night when he gave thee no trouble? Overwhelmed with remorse, Abraham rushed out after his guest and brought him back in honor. Go thou and do likewise, ends the story, and thy charity will be rewarded by the God of Abraham. In the oldest version of this story, the Lord says, Abraham, for a hundred years the divine bounty has flowed out to this man. Is it for thee to withhold thy hand from him because his worship is not thine? One is strongly reminded of the Nephite law, which declared it strictly contrary to the commands of God to penalize one's neighbor if he does not choose to believe in God. Once Abraham broke the ice, others began to follow. Pharaoh returned his generosity by escorting him on his way. Abimelech loaded him with gifts. The Hittites matched his fair dealings with their own. Again and again, writes Joseph Block, it is compassion and forgiveness alone that are the unfailing family trait of the true descendant of Abraham. Luzado discussed the polarity of the human race between Abrahamism and Atticism, with Abrahamism elaborating the poetry and practice of compassion and tenderness, while Atticism articulated man's cold, calculating, self-centered approach to life. A disciple of Abraham, according to a well-known tract of the Talmud, can be distinguished by a good eye, a humble soul, and a lowly spirit. 
while the men of the world are marked by an evil eye, a proud soul, and a haughty spirit. Man is only worthy of his name. He is only really a man if he has fully acquired the virtues of Abraham. It is only then that he is worthy of being called lover of God or God-fearing, like Abraham and David. Like Brigham Young, Abraham sought to benefit his fellows in practical ways. As a young man back in Mesopotamia, he invented a cedar that covered up the seeds as it sowed them, so the birds could not take them. And for this, his name became great in all the land of the Chaldees. He apologized to the birds for driving them off and came to an amicable understanding with them, for he was kind to all living things. No one who is cruel to any creature, says an old formula, can ever be a descendant of Abraham. Compassion is the keynote of Abraham's life and the teaching that makes the Pearl of Great Price supremely relevant to our own time. This is most unequivocally affirmed in what is the most remarkable passage of the book, where God himself weeps as he is about to bring the flood upon the earth. Not but peace, justice, and truth is the habitation of thy throne, cries Enoch, and mercy shall go before thy face and have no end. How is it thou canst weep? The Lord said, In the garden of Eden gave I unto man his agency, and unto thy brethren have I given commandment that they should love one another. But behold, they are without affection, and they hate their own blood. This is the end of this recording. Thank you for being with us. For additional information on this and other farms publications, call Farms at 1-800-327-6715, 1-800-FARMS-15. You can also reach our website at farmsresearch.com or visit your local LDS bookstore.